<laughs> the paranormal, a realm to explore and find answers to never-ending questions. What happens to us when we die? Is there an afterlife? Are there such things as ghosts? And are legends real? And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. In this special, I look at those that investigate and try to find those elusive answers. Paranormal State was an interesting program. Paranormal State was an interesting program that separated from other shows, according to host and guiding force, Ryan Buell. Paranormal investigators are differ from, you know, ghost hunters. Um, they're two different terms, and ghost hunters are typically people who go out and just try to capture evidence. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't see a difference in the use of, you know, what you may call scientific equipment. Um, you know, paranormal investigators still you know, use the same stuff, but we're more interested in the theory. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a ghost hunting team may go in there and just say, well, you know, oh, we, we captured this EVP, we captured the sound. Well, we go, well, what does that mean? Or, you know, so so you captured a sound. that That's great, but who is it? Why are they here? Um, we try to understand the psychology of it all. And, you know, it's a, kind of a mix between detective work and journalism where, you know, you have this case, this mystery, and um, we try to look at it holistically in, in different, you know, angles beyond just, let's just capture some cool evidence. But, you know, we, we are very interested in finding out, well, why would someone be haunting this place? And if so, who are they? You know, why are they here? Um, and what do they want? It's a very, very, very fascinating field. It's, it's a very different approach and we like to you know very much treat treat our cases like detective work where we go in there and we try to solve that mystery more sci-fi talk so stay tuned ghost adventures the original team zach bagans nick groff and aaron goodwin talked to me at san diego comic-con about some of the locations they investigated the one you just did, I think it was this season, the, the Loma Linda Hospital. That was amazing. Yeah, a lot of people like that Linda Vista Hospital, but I think, uh, you know, it, it had a lot of turmoil attached to it, a lot of undisclosed uh, things uh, about how it shut down. And I think when you start getting into a lot of questions that never had answers about how a place shut down and, and deaths and stuff like that, there's a lot of unfinished business there. There's a lot of unresolved energy, and I think that really makes for a good recipe for a haunting. And uh, especially down in the basement when I found some human ash and I think I picked up a tooth, Aaron's hand sanitizer came in real uh, real handy. <laughs> what's uh, what's really been interesting too? Another place I really enjoyed was the um, the hot, I think it was like a mental institution in Pennsylvania that was shut down. And yeah, Penhurst. Yeah, uh, Penhurst State School. Yet again, another place with a lot of controversy. Um, I mean, you got a place where where it's very unfortunate that some people are born with a disability that they don't ask for. And here they are sent to a place to try and get help, and instead of getting help, they were given harm. So to add to that negative energy, it was a real sad place. We went there with open arms, but at the same time, we had something happen that we were unable to debunk. 
you know, I almost got stabbed in the heart by a huge coat rack that we thought fell, but then after we replayed the footage, we placed it about 10 feet from the place where we thought it was. And um, it was an amazing place at Pennhurst. Yeah, Moon River Brewery Company, Savannah, Georgia. That was an intense investigation. They took us all three of us off guard, actually. We were just setting up, getting ready to prepare for the lockdown, for our investigation that night. And the sun didn't even set at that moment. But from the point that we got locked in there to the point where some sort of energy took over my body and I just lost all reality in that moment of time, it, it, it was a very scary moment. I've never experienced anything like that. I, I was always like, all right, possessions, whatever, you know, I've heard about them, but can they really happen? Can something like an energy that you can't see really take over your body and your mind and really just lose all self-control uh, of yourself? And that's exactly what happened. I mean, it's happened to Zach, it's happened to myself, and after that, I mean, you, your mind opens up to new things that are unexplainable that we're trying to understand as we're investigating on our, our ventures that we're doing. Aaron, I don't know how you do it, man, but you're always the guy who goes off somewhere alone, and the most memorable one for me was when that attic in the plantation in the South where the guy hung himself, and you're up there, and I'm going, I could never do that. Yeah, that was the Riddle House. That was uh, that was my actually my very first investigation going up on my by myself. And all I can remember is when that birdcage fell. I felt this energy. I jumped. It scared me, and I just had to go get the boys. <laughs> they put me in some rough spots, man. A lot. It's like, I mean, at first I used to be thanks a lot, but now it's kind of a cool experience going there and feel what you're feeling and see what you see and. I mean, what's the questions? There's so many questions to be answered. So, uh, thanks, Nick and Zach, for putting me in there. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Another interesting paranormal show is The Dead Files, where Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi investigated the paranormal in a unique way, separately. They talked to me about the infamous Lizzie Borden house. You remember the rhyme? Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her father 40 wax. And when she was done, she gave her mom 41. Something along those lines. I felt like I knew everything going in. You know, I've seen documentaries when I was a kid that scared me. And I was biased going in. And I felt that, you know, it was a very, very difficult walk to do. And Steve, what about you from, a, you know, from an investigative point? There's so much out there in books on the subject. Well, you know what it is with me, you know, being behind the scenes on a lot of ho famous homicide cases, I know there's so much that's not given out in public information mm -hmm. that I knew going in there, was, there had to be a lot of, uh, you know, like I, I, I would say behind the tape stuff that nobody knows about, behind the crime scene tape. And I knew going in that there was probably going to be a lot more material in regards to this case uh, than anybody really knew about, and, and I was able to find that out. So going in, I had my preconceived motion, uh, notions of what happened, mm -hmm. like I think everybody else does, even if you're not a detective. Just uncovering the stuff that I was able to find out, it, w it made the case even more interesting to me than it was uh, before I even started it. Interesting. Amy, was there... Um when you walk into a house like that, uh, is there like a general vibe you feel besides specific entities that are there? Uh, honestly, it just depends on the location. You know, some, some of them, if they have a lot of residual energy, you'll feel that. 
Um, but if they're not, then then you don't, and then there's just dead people. I mean, it just totally depends on on the location. Steve, from an investigative standpoint, how much good evidence is really available from this case? Uh, not a lot. The crime scene was tainted, compromised beyond belief. I mean, by today's standards, it would be, it would be thrown out of court. They wouldn't be able to present it. But there was so much good evidence that could have been, you know, obtained the right way, and she could have been easily interrogated properly, and she probably would have gave it up. Uh, they just didn't do their due diligence as, as a real case, and I think they were overwhelmed by it. It was a small town, not too many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the cops were uh, a little bit over their head with this one. Sounds like it from what I've read in the past. Yeah. Has and f- they also had a lot of money, which helped. Uh, you know, when you think about it, they had uh, the dream team for the defense back in the day. So uh, it was probably overwhelming for the prosecutor's office as well. And actually, during the course of the show, I won't say what, but there's also some interesting ties between the, the, the uh, some of the attorneys and I think some of the judges too. So that could. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was a total total uh, conflict of interest. Yeah. It, you know, we're talking how long? 1892. Yeah. Uh, it is what it is. Absolutely, absolutely. For both of you, did anything uh, su- you know surprise you as far as this case was concerned? Oh, I think the reveal uh, blew me away. Yeah. <laughs> I think Amy's. Uh, there were some things that I encountered on my walk that were pretty startling. To say the least, I, I, I didn't see it coming. I can tell you that. Yeah. Now, as far as your walkthroughs, Amy's, how does this one rank? I, I think it's one of your most intense. I think I was just in shock a lot. I, you know, seeing things I did not expect to see. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kind of just had an idea of what I was going to see, and I was not seeing the things I thought I was going to see, so I was just very shocked. Yeah, I, th- I think that's actually part of the strongest part of the show. It literally sheds uh, some new evidence that's never been brought out, and I've seen my share of Lizzie Borden documentaries, and that's never come out before. So I think. Well, yeah, I think that's so that they, they did hit on it then, I guess. So. Yeah. Sci fi talk returns in a moment. Who is Jack the Ripper? There are many theories on who it could be. And one author, Jeff Mudgett, thinks it could be a relative of his, Dr. Henry Holmes. It slowly crept up on me, this uh, search for the truth, after I started finding out that many of the things written about this man were just wrong. It became an obsession where pretty much my life was turned upside down with finding out uh, what we really were and, and the things I had taken for granted in my own life. Uh, it's been I, I've been working on it for ten years now, and it's finally just coming. Uh, well, we're, uh, some incredible things are starting to uh, pop up, which uh, fascinate me still. And you know, that's certainly a, a, a feasible explanation uh, that the connection between uh, you know Dr. Holmes and Jack the Ripper too. Um, now, besides the the handwriting analysis. Um, was there anything to indicate that he was in London at the time of the killings or for Jack the Ripper? Oh, yeah. I've got um, notes, um, comments from Holmes about uh, not enjoying the London newspapers, things like that. Um, there was, there's no doubt he was there. Connecting those things to him being Jack the Ripper is another, another story. And, and I write about him being Jack the Ripper in the book. It's at chapter 23. But... What happened, Tony, was after I published the book, 
uh, we started uh, getting contact from people who had spent, you know, who had their hobbies were proving that H.H. H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper, and this new information just, well, it flooded in to where uh, we have evidence now, and this is what I used to do for a living, evidence now which establishes a probable cause that he should have been considered a suspect. Mm. Now, that's, that, you know, and you know, that's a long way from an author getting up and saying, I can prove he was Jack the right. Ripper. Right, right. No, I can prove that there's probable cause that he should be considered and that if if the FBI and if Scotland Yard want to prove who Jack the Ripper was, and you and I can discuss uh, my, my belief about how many people, this is a big industry. Jack the Ripper is a billion dollars a year. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? I'm not so sure they want it proven. I think they like the way it is, but uh, we're going to point them in the right direction should they want to. Right. So you're just you're not saying that you know for sure, but you're saying that besides Gull, uh, Dr. Henry Holmes uh, should be uh, should be a suspect as well. I think you're you're right. You're right on. There there is no doubt. And then the pathologists that I've hired to uh, run down the reports that were done. I mean, about four months after I published the book, I got contacted by a fellow at Scotland Yard. Oh, cool. He told me that uh, he thought I was going in the right direction. That they, for decades they had believed that the Ripper was responsible for the first two or three murders, and the set, the last two were done by a copycat. Mm. And that was because of the method used in the slashings and the, uh, well, the surgery, mm. quote-unquote, uh, yeah. after the murder, mm. where the first two murders, whoever was the killer removed organs from the cavity uh, in four minutes' time in the fog on a street in London without damaging any of the ordering organs. And the doctors who did, who did the pathology... Uh, you know, you can you can go back and read those the comments they had. There, there's no doubt it it was a surgeon and one with great talent. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had to have been a medical man. Most people don't realize this, Tony, but there were 13 eyewitnesses to what Jack the Ripper looked like in 2006. The BBC in Scotland Yard put those eyewitness accounts into their computer that Scotland Yard, the CIA, the FBI used to come up with facial uh, representations. Case solved. I don't know. This is still ongoing. I actually toured the murder scenes in London and saw the infamous Ten Bells pub where many of the victims frequented. In Destination Truth, an expedition unknown, Josh Gates investigated local legends, myths, and urban legends. King Arthur, I mean, that is really tackling a project. It is. It's a huge story, actually. And uh, I think the reason we wanted to tackle it is that... uh it's a name everybody knows. It's a story that everybody's kind of heard, uh, and they're familiar with the players in that story. You know, we all know Arthur and Merlin and Guinevere and Lancelot. And these are names that are really familiar to us. Mm-hmm. And yet there's this huge question, which is, are any of these people based on real people? Is this, are these real people or is this just the world of fantasy? Yeah. And, and it's not an easy answer. You know, it's, it's something that, uh, on paper, it sounds like a fantasy. You, know, you hear about Merlin and Mordred and these, you know, legendary battles. It sounds like Game of Thrones kind of stuff. But in fact, there's a lot of evidence that these may be based on on real people, and there may be a real history here. And it's, uh, as you said, it's a big project. And and so we went and uh, filmed this really, I think, cool episode that's going to be our premiere, which uh, will take us through England and Wales and Scotland to to dive into this and to try to mm-hmm. figure out if we can, you know, verify whether or not Arthur existed or not. 
I'm interested in because uh, there's you you kind of got a clue that that he actually might have been Scottish too, and uh, and based mm-hmm. on somebody you know the, the character was based on somebody from Scotland, uh, and and kind of fits the legend a little bit too. So that should be interesting. It really is, and and what's what's kind of maddening about the story actually is that when you go around the UK, every town you go to has some link to the story. There's a hill named after one of the characters, or there's a there's an old ruin of a castle that someone says could be Camelot. And you realize that this story is just really imprinted kind of in the cultural DNA of, of the UK. And, yeah. uh, and it makes it a really important story. It's kind of, you know, one of the real underpinning stories of, of English history. And, um, and so it's an important story. And, and, uh, and, and it has a lot of different avenues to go down. So for us, it was really exciting to explore a few of those. I think what's different for you in this show than Destination Truth is that I think you're wearing more hats. I think you're wearing an an archaeologist hat, an explorer's hat, also a scientist, and and maybe a little bit of a detective, too. It's a lot of things you have to juggle to uh, to do this particular show. It is. You know, and I think that, you know, one of the things that was fun about Destination Truth is the stories were very straightforward, right? It was like, this is a place where people saw a creature of some kind, we're going to go check it out. This is a place that somebody says is haunted, we're going to go check it out. I think what's what's so fun about Expedition Unknown is that these stories require sometimes a bit of a deeper dive. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to talk about Genghis Khan requires kind of learning more about Genghis Khan, for, for myself included. I mean, this is a guy who's like, yeah, I know the name, I don't really know the, the sort of nuts and bolts of, of really what he did or how vast his empire was. So, I think there is a kind of learning component to the show where you do have to get a bit more framework to understand the stories. But, we, you know, the, these stories and these characters and these mysteries, they're, they're so big and juicy that, that the stories just, they almost feel like thrillers. You know, when you, when you read about Blackbeard's exploits or Genghis Khan's military campaigns, they read like a thriller. And so yeah. what's so fun about it is I think detective is the right word. It's like really kind of going down the rabbit hole and, and, and telling these stories by kind of trying to highlight the adventures that these guys had. And, and, uh, and, and all, all of that to me just makes for a really dynamic uh, show. So I, I love making it. Producer Ron Simon and his director, Jeff Katz, Talk to me about True Terror, Robert Englund, and we talk about their host. He's our main storyteller, and he, he brings these stories to life, and, and he's just so delightfully creepy. I mean, when you see him yes. in his delivery, he really immerses himself in these stories, and it was very important to Robert to understand uh, the stories, where they came from, what they were about, the themes of these stories, um, uh, why we wrote them a certain way. Um, you know, based on the on the facts of the story, and it was just an honor to have him. So he's he's a great he's a great voice and a face for the show. And yeah. you know, truthfully, it, it it kind of harkens back in some fashion to, you know, you might think of Rod Serling in The Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock in Hitchcock Presents. Uh, you know, if if you liked those classic programs, then you're going to love True Terror. For both of you, how do you make this one stand out so it doesn't? I'm sure there's some overlap, but how do you make this one a little more original? Uh, that's a great question. Yes, we have a lot of stories about paranormal activity and occurrences, but it goes far beyond that. And what, what makes this series so unique is that it's really a, a, a collection of very wild but very true stories that were found hidden deep inside the archives of American newspapers all of which were verifiably printed and reported as true. 
And they, the stories run the range of, you know, it's yes, it's paranormal, like you mentioned, but we also have lots of stories about uh, horrifying beast encounters, uh, deadly prophecies, murders, uh, to other stories that are just plain creepy and macabre. And, you know, we're, we're retelling these stories with the help of Robert, of course. Um, but I think that's more than anything what makes them stand out. You're going to get a really good range of uh, stories outside of the paranormal. If you like paranormal, you're going to love that too. But you're also going to get a good a good range outside of that. And what I what I particularly like is that they're sort of bite sized. You know, it's three stories per episode, mm-hmm. so it's really easy yeah. to watch. You know, it's perfect for late night if you like to scare yourself and you want to cuddle up and you turn the lights off. It's it's sort of filled. You know, these stories are filled with lots of jump scares and other things you might find in like your your favorite horror films or sci fi films, except. Remember, this is all true. So they yeah. really happened. This is like comfort food viewing for, for the paranormal. <laughs> and, but it is, it is bite-sized, you know, taking true facts, bringing them to life, and, and really expounding on those stories uh, and how they played out at the time. And, and, and it, it's just so exciting. Uh, uh, to hear these things as, as Jeff was presenting the stories to me, like this couldn't happen. The amount of times like Jeff, no, seriously, this didn't happen. Did it? And he would then just like pull out, pull out the one article and show me. It was just like, Holy cow. This is, this is amazing that, that these things were reported and, and uh, were, were verified at the time. The, uh, for example, the, the trio of stories, just to kind of tease the audience, uh, a North Carolina storekeeper is literally has uh, has a countdown to his own demise. And that's really interesting <laughs> right there. And then literally a, a, a teenager from New Orleans, you got to say it the right way, finds himself trapped literally in a walking nightmare. And an Atlanta police station literally be, is a battleground for a killer. Three diverse uh, stories. I would say that you must have had, uh, you know, some a long prep time in as far as researching what stories to include. And and then you probably ended up with more material than you wanted. So you had to cut some things. So that was some tough decisions that had to be made. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a great observation. You're right. Uh, you know, when you when you start to dig into these uh, newspaper archives, it is a. It can be an arduous process because you really have to uh, comb through uh, and uh, keep your eyes peeled for anything that may jump out. Certainly, that fits the theme of the series. But there's just. But they're there. If you look close enough, closely enough, they are there. It was, of course, for season one, very important to get this thing up on its feet the right way. We didn't want to just tell the stories that have been told before. In fact. Arguably, and maybe Ron, you, you might know too because you do a lot of these, you know, these types of stories. But I, I would say a few of these, maybe there's maybe one or two in all of the 18 stories that make up season one that you've heard before. Otherwise, these are stories that are completely obscure, like I said, buried in in, in American newspapers. The wealth of the wealth of that uh, that that like trove of material is enormous. Portals to hell has Jack Osborne and Katrina Weidman. Katrina Weidman actually got her start on Paranormal State, and they talked about season two. Um, you know, we aren't 
necessarily leaning so hard into the most sinister, the most evil, terrifying places. Because I think as a paranormal investigator, that kind of limits you. Um, you know, we're, we're open to dealing with any and all element of the, the paranormal as it pertains to the spirituality side of things. Unfortunately, you know, we don't get to do alien UFO stuff as much as I would like, because that's, that's, my, that's my jam. <laughs> yeah, it's just that. I mean, we go to places which are kind of mellowly haunted by things that people perceive to be demonic. And we go to places which are like, people are like, oh my God, I'm jumping out of my skin. There's a demon here and I'm possessed. So we kind of run the gambit. And I guess the through line is ultimately, it has to be somewhat negative. Um, you know, we, we tend to stray away from like the friendly ghost that leaves you a warm cup of milk and a cookie at the end of your bed. So the, you, your visit for the two-hour premiere, the old Paulding Jail, Katrina, what was that like? Kind of give us kind of a tease as to what we can expect. Old Paulding Jail is interesting because Jack and I went in there hearing all these stories about it, why people thought it was haunted, the people involved with the things that caused the haunting. And I don't necessarily think that we found a lot of the stories that we were told going in to be true. But interestingly enough, even though some of that stuff seems to be misidentified, it didn't stop the fact that the place does have unexplainable activity happening. It didn't stop the things we experienced in our investigation. And we actually found some really unexpected pieces of gosh, what would I even call them without giving it away? <laughs> we, we just found some really weird stuff on that investigation um, that kind of threw us yeah, it was threw just, us off a little bit. Yeah, certainly not what we were expecting. The paranormal is fascinating to us. And until we find more answers, the investigations will continue. And so will the questions. This is Tony Talato.